said in my prayer, this is probably the most, these familiar verses to most everyone, um, but it's also important is um, the fact that we understand what that means. Uh, it's important because we are called by God, as it tells us, and we're going to read somewhere in the future, uh, chapter 15, that we are all called uh, by God to come alongside one another because we are competent to counsel one another. And we are competent to encourage one another and, co and competent to support one another. Uh, we are called to be disciples and we are called uh, to understand what God's word means and we are called to be disciple makers. And we need to understand that when we go to these familiar passages, though familiar they may be, we may still not get them right. Because sometimes we use these as, uh, in a way that we intend them to be loving and intend them to be encouraging, and yet the one who is receiving this counsel may feel that they've been either hit with a hammer or that they've been given a pacifier. Um, can you, have, have you ever heard that somebody says, but Pastor Jim, though, uh, you know, though you may have lost your job, remember Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. So what does that mean? Just shut up and keep on going. Or it could be meant to be a pacifier. Pastor Jim, don't worry. God's got a better job for you. Now, our, both of those are means needing some interpretation. One can be completely wrong, and another can be uh, needs, someone needs to explain to me what it all means. Uh, because we don't know that uh, uh, when it says that, don't you know that all these things God is working out for good. So what does that mean? And the other one means that it, you're going to get a better job. Now, is, is that really true? Is that what Romans 8, 28 is telling us? And the answer is no, it's not. It's not any of that. Because, again, it leaves a person feeling like they like they better you know just get with the program or that don't worry about it. It's, it, you know, just smile through it or be stoic and just grin and bear it because God's in control. You need more faith then. You need to really understand what this Bible means. And this is one of these verses that is the bedrock of our faith, is the bedrock of our heart. It's really the, the, the core of our being, this, this passage this, this uh, Romans 8, 28, all the way through the end of chapter 8. This is, the, as I've mentioned before many times, this is the words from the Lord himself that is going to encourage us and strengthen us in times when we find ourselves not understanding the perplexities of life. Or we may getting, we, the 
where our lives may be going in a straight line, and then all of a sudden God throws the curveball at us, and we find these twists and turns. Now, sometimes we, you know, we we are we will understand what's happening, or we will be able to see at the other side what's going on. And sometimes we never know why God has allowed this to happen in your life. Now, in Romans, in chapter eight, from verse eighteen, on, verse eighteen and following, we've. We've uh, been hearing that it says in verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then we learn that the world and creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption of, of God's children, of the saints. And even too, there, through this time of suffering, he says in verse tw- of 24, For in this hope, right, this hope is, that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Likewise, it says to us in verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, right? We're going through difficult times. We don't know what's happening. There are twists and turns, and it is going to happen in, in our lives. And he says, but don't worry, I want to encourage you, because even when we don't know what's going on, as it says here, for we do not know what to pray. But yet we find out in 828, what does he say? We do know. We know something. But as he says in verse 26, the Spirit intercedes for us. The Spirit then works in our hearts. And in our groaning, by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, we groan to the Lord, and the Holy Spirit takes these groanings and intercedes for us to the Father. And I'm going to read again just from this book uh, by uh, J.I. Packer and Carol Nystrom, the book on praying. I want to just read again what we ended up with last time because he was talking about praying. She said this, Carol Nystrom, and she says, one way or another, God's response will be a positive response, though it may be, I'm adjusting the terms of your prayer to give you something better than what you asked for. Or it may be, I know that this isn't the moment in which answering your prayer would bring you and others most blessings, so I'm asking you to wait. Or it may be, I am answering your prayer, but you don't know the strategy I'm working on And it doesn't at this moment feel or look like an answer at all. Nonetheless, it is. Keep praying, keep trusting, keep looking for what down the road I may be able in wisdom to let you see. And that's where she says, the Holy Spirit takes our groanings and and the prayers that we pray or the wordless prayers that we pray and he fixes them on the way up to God. But now we see something that he gives us this assurance, right? This, there seems to be this assurance that Paul wants us to have, this, this confidence. And this is the very confidence that we have as we read these verses 28 through 39, is that the, these are the bedrock of our faith because we understand that as he says to us, he says, uh, 
if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, verse 32, how will he not be with with him graciously give us all things? So he goes right back to the historical event of the coming of Christ, of the dying of Christ, of of the rising of Christ, of the atonement of our sins, and of his his being declared, as chapter 1 says to us, being declared the Son of God by the power of holiness. By the power of the Holy Spirit, during the resurrection, Jesus was declared to be the very Son of God. That's the very core of why we can stand here today and proclaim and give God the glory that He is in control, that God sovereignly takes care of all things for us. And that we can trust that we put our lives on the line, that we bank every part of our being in giving our life to the Lord because we trust Him in doing what is best for us. But again, we have to understand what good means and what best means. Because in the Exodus, right, if we look at at the Exodus and we look at how God sovereignly redeemed the people of Israel, from all that year, all those years of being in torment and being in slavery and then guiding him through and going through the, the sea and the sea parting and then providing for them. If you read the Psalms, if you read any kind of the hope, that's the very core of what they go back to. They go back to that historical event because that's how God revealed his love to them. That's how God revealed himself through them was through that historical of exodus. Now we have this point in time to go back to. They're looking forward. The Old Testament saints look forward. We're looking back upon the, the, day, the, the time that Jesus came and the life that he, he led and the life that he gave for us and dying upon the cross and being the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, our lamb, so that our sins may be forgiven the wrath of God be turned away, and so that then that he becomes, the, he becomes uh, our propitiation or our substitute, and then being raised from the dead, and all of that says, see, I told you. This is who he is. Jesus, this is saying, he is saying, this is who I am. And that is where the bedrock of our faith, that is where we understand that we will trust God. If there's some other way, then there is. But there cannot be. Because this is the truth. No one has been born and perfect and been raised from the dead. Not any other person on earth. And so we then give our life because God has given us his spirit and he's given us faith to believe what God says. Understanding the sovereignty of God is the greatest thing that I've ever learned in my life. It's the greatest thing that you can ever learn in your life. Because until I came to understand that, I believed that God was in control. But when I believed that God was really in control of everything, then there was an ability by His grace to be able to trust Him when, he, when all the twists and the turns come my way or your way. There are those who believe, and it's uh, called open theism, and the thesis of that is 
that because God loves us and desires that we freely choose to reciprocate his love, notice it's something that we're doing, he has made his knowledge of and the plans for the future conditional upon our actions. Though God is omniscient, God does not know what he what will what we will fru- freely do in the future. Wow, what a bankrupt belief that is. That's called open theism and it's books out there it's being preached on that God doesn't violate our free will and God only is able to help us because he just understands the future just a few more days than we understand the future. That's no hope whatsoever. Here's a a translation of what we're going to be looking at uh, from 28 to 30. This week is, next week is 29 through 30. But notice what this one translator writes. We know that all things are working for the good for those of us who love God. We know this is so because we who love are also those whom he has summoned by God to enter into a relationship with him. A summons that is in accordance with God's purpose to mold us into the image of Christ and to glorify us. That's what that all means. That's what this is all talking about. Paul says with assurance, like John says in his letters, we know, by this we know. As we, when we look through there, as you go in there, you can circle so many times when the word know comes up. We know, by this we know. You know, we're, he's giving them assurance that we have this positive uh, belief and this positive trust and that as God has sent his son to die, by this we know what love is, that he gave his son for us, he says. By this we know that we are believers if we do those three tests again, right? The test of do we believe that God is who he says he is? Do we believe in the gospel? Do we love one another as Jesus shows us how to love us and him and each other? Does the gospel and that love change you and me into a different person? Have we become new creatures in Christ so that now we no longer live in Adam, but now we live in Jesus? That's how we know that it even makes a difference or we even care. So Paul, in verse 28, gives us a scope of that what we know. The first scope, the first uh, perspective on scope is that is it is unlimited. Notice what he says. He says, and we know that in all things, and he says, all things. What do all things mean? Some things? Well, sometimes we think, we feel, and we act as if there are some things. But God tells us it's all things. We read in uh, verse 32, as I have read here today, he who did not spare his own son, verse 8, 
gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, we've seen 1136. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means your desires, my desires. Your doing in deeds, my doing in deeds. My failures, your failures. My sins, your sins. The world's hatred upon us, the world's uh, attacks against us, Satan's onslaught, Satan's attack, his work in trying to stop God's plan, all of that, all of that is under the sovereignty of God. And he says, all of these things work together. And as I think of the word work together, again, I'm going to be bringing things up that I've said many times to you over the years because I think it's some of us catch it and some of us don't. But he works all things together, meaning that the word here is the doctrine of concurrence. And concurrence is this, two or more parties can act in the same event Produce a given outcome without all parties having the same intent. Produce a given outcome without all parties having the same intent. So, as Joe read for us, read for us today from Genesis, write the story of Joseph. What did he say? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Completely two different ends and goals, but still used by God. That's concurrence. We see, again, and I try to have you envision a picture of a river, right? A river, and that's the decree of God. This is the full counsel of God. Everything that is God wants to happen and that will happen and nobody can stop from happening is the main river. And feeding into that river are all these tributaries and all these streams, our desires, our wants, our deeds, the deeds of others, our sins, Satan's work, all work into that river, but yet God somehow takes all of that and brings it into his will. We can't figure that out, but... I hope 
hope that that's encouraging for you. Because listen to this passage. You've heard this many times. A great illustration of concurrence, meaning that it's fully you and me, or fully the world, or fully Satan, and it's fully God being in control. Acts 2, verses 22 through 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. A hundred percent lawless men. The hundred percent the will of the people. But a hundred percent fully God. Taking it over. Using it. Not that it was good. He didn't say it was good. Jesus suffering, the Isaiah 53, the, the terrible suffering of that servant dying upon the cross. And yet God takes it so that he now becomes our redeemer and our savior. That's why he came into the world. And then there's another term called the antinomy, right? Antimony, A-N-T-I-M-O-N-Y. It's a contradiction between two apparent, equally valid principles. That means when you look at the back of a watch years ago, you saw the gear going this way, and then you saw the gear going on the other side this way. And it looked like a contradiction. This principle was this to go to the right. The principle of this gear was to go this way. But son of a gun, the watch was giving you right time. And that's how God works. He takes things that look like apparent contradiction to us, and he works by his sovereign, as it says here, his definite plan and the foreknowledge of himself and what he's going to do. And he works it. And that's how it all works together. He's not saying that these things work together themselves. Doesn't say that it works together himself. Because in some manuscripts, it's saying here that we know that for those who love God, and there are translations that God, it says that God causes all things to work together. And some manuscripts, if you look at the end of uh, the footnote in some of your Bibles, it'll say in some of the manuscripts it says God. Now, the better ones don't say that one, so that's why it doesn't get into the ESV. But there's no problem with that, right? That's what we hopefully assume, that it is God causing all these things to work together. And really, it could be, which I'm thinking, which other people think, is that, excuse me, it's actually the executor of God's plan, and that's who? The Holy Spirit, who he's been talking about in chapter 8. He just was talking about the Holy Spirit being involved in our lives. And we realize that, right, you've heard this, that God is the one who makes the plans, Jesus is the one who accomplishes the plans, and the Holy Spirit is the one who executes the plans. And that's what's happening here. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, God is working all these things together. A plan, a purpose, a power. That's the name of next week's sermon. 
He has all those for us, and that's what's happening. These things just don't have any power to do that themselves. Here we have a, I have a jigsaw puzzle, and the jigsaw puzzle is of our solar system. So the person who created this has a plan that it's going to look like the solar system when it's done. But if I go, okay, puzzle, do it yourself, can't do it itself. And you notice in here there's all kinds of different shapes, and some of them have straight edges, and some of them have some of them are flat, and some of them have all different kinds of angles. Well, this is what God does. God takes these pieces. These are all things, and he works these together because he has a plan, right? He has a plan of what you and I are supposed to look like and what we, in the end, what we're going to be. And what does this end mean? It says for good. And what is good? Well, I got a biblical answer for that. Mark 10, 17 through 22. And, a, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and felt befe- knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not be defraud. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He said also to him, Teacher, all of these things I kept from my youth. And Jesus, loved him, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven Come, follow me, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So we have to un- understand what is good. When somebody comes up to us and say, Pastor, God has a better job waiting for you, is that the ultimate good that God has for me? Is a better job really what's going to be better for me? It certainly is for me in my plan in the jigsaw puzzle that I've built for my life. But what is good? It is what God wants because only God alone is good. So when we tell somebody that, we're telling them that ultimately it is going to be good. In this world, it's going to be good. Are we really telling people the truth that in this life, because something bad is happens in your life, that ultimately it will all work out? Don't worry, Jim. It's going to work out. How the heck do you know? How do you really know that it's going to work out? There's the pacifier. We stick it right in people's mouth. We're not telling them the truth. Do we believe this verse? Yes. But we can't believe it like that because we're spreading lies. Only God knows what's good. And so that's what he says here. For, he says, for good. That's what he's talking about. And the key thought for this first part of unlimited scope is one word. And there 
in verse 28, and we know that. That's a big word. You know why? Because it's not the word how. We know that God does all these things, but we don't know and we may never know how it will all work out. We may never know why God allows these things to go on in our life or go on in anybody's life or in the world. And you scratch your your head and you go, what good can come from that? Well, God doesn't need to tell us how. Why? Are we in the place of God? And yes, we are. Right? Admit it. We are. We are God's. That's how we live our life. That's how we think about ourselves. We demand an answer. Wouldn't it be nice, God, if you gave us the answer? Well, maybe not. Maybe it's better off that you never know how it worked out. And maybe if he gave gave us something that we really thought was better for us, it may be the worst thing in our life. But it's not how, it's that. He's telling us something that we should be confident of. And that is what? That all things work together for good. Because God causes it. The second part. Now the scope, is it unlimited or is it limited? And the answer, it's limited. Because as we look, it says, for God, he, we, 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 and we know that for those who love God, uh-oh, is that promise then for everybody? No. So then why can we tell our next-door neighbor that everything's going to be worked all right, all right? It'll be okay. It'll all work out. But people want to believe that because they just believe that it's going to work out all right. Now, I know I, I, I understand that I'm not saying all of us do that. But there are Christians who do that. Don't worry. It'll be okay. And there's some reason God didn't want that to happen in your life. I've had a person stand up in our church, not here, in another church and saying, well, God had nothing to do with that whatsoever. Well, after they called 911 and beat my heart back in place again, going like, you can't say that, because that's not biblical. God's involved in everything. He's the first of all causes. Secondary causes are you and me, and the things that happen in the world, and the storms, and the tsunamis, and the blizzards, and the potholes, and all the things. Those are the secondary causes that God is very much involved in because he's the first cause. But we may never know how, but we know that he's in control. And so he says, who is this promise for? Who are the people that should be confident? Those who love God. Let's read Romans 8 here. I'll turn to Romans 8, verses 1 through 8. There is now near no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death and does not love God. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Wow, can't you get anything more opposite than love? Hostility. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God because they don't love God. In fact, they hate God. Chapter 1, right? He says, they failed. They, they failed to glorify me. They failed to love me. They failed to thank me. So he gives them over. That's what this is about. So this is very limited, very limited in the scope of whose blessing and whose promise this is. And then he says, the next one, for this who are called according to his purpose. The word here is those who are called. And again, if we go to chapter 1 of of this book, it's very important to see in verses 6 and 7, he says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. It was really nice to have a conversation with somebody this week who had no idea that as being a Christian they were a saint because they used to be Roman Catholics. And when I told them that they were saints, their eyes bugged out of their head. And it was wonderful to be able to say, yes, this is, <laughs> this is how we're addressed by Paul in the letters, to the saints here in Hope Church. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both Lord and ours. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 9. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to be holy into a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is important, this calling. It is a specific, effectual calling. Many are called, but few are chosen. There's, meant, there's a lot of seeds being spread. There's a lot of stuff being sprayed out there. I'm preaching, and I can preach to anybody. I can preach this anywhere, and you can preach the gospel anywhere. But this not my work that's being done. It's God's work. And the Spirit is working in the hearts of those who God wants to call. And when he calls, he knows who you are. You are known by God. 
you are. God is intimate with you. He calls you by name. My sheep hear my voice. This is a calling that everybody who is here, who knows Jesus and loves Jesus, has heard his name. I mean, heard his voice. You've heard him call you. It is not a general calling. It is an effectual, special calling. It's a summoning. Remember, I read that in the beginning from that one translation. And those who are called, the same person says, then describes Christians not as recipients of an invitation, but that that was left up to them to reject or accept, but as objects of God's effectual summoning, wooing, drawing, loving, them to become recipients of this grace. And what happens is that in Romans 4, we read verses 16 through 17, that it, it, that it that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise made rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of the offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, verse 17, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, he, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Until the call comes, you and I have no faith, no place with God. But when the call comes, when the summoning calls, by the work of the Holy Spirit, he then gives us faith. He not only gives us the call, but with the call, we need to be justified. We're going to look at that next week. For those he justified, he glorified. With that calling is the faith to be justified. That's the summoning. That's the call you need to hear. Because without it, you can never be a Christian. As I told my young friend that I led to the Lord, I said, Raymond, he's a, I think I may have told you this, he's a crazy, avid hockey player and loves the Boston Bruins. He lives there. And I said, Raymond, you would love to be a Boston Bruin. I said, but until the office in Boston calls you up, and tells you we want you to be a Boston Bruin, you'll never be a Boston Bruin. And then he calls me up a couple of, a week later. He goes, Jim, I got the call from the office. He says, I believe that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. I, I believe that I needed him for my sins. That illustration God used to let him know that when they called, it just didn't give him Oh, here's your, you want it or not? It is the, the desire, the passion, the want, the faith to believe now. And we read in Corinthians, right, until the Spirit of God works in our heart, you and I will never call Jesus Lord. And then, then it says, so the scope is limited, right? It's limited because of for those who uh, love God, for those who are called by God, and those who are called according to his purpose. That goes back to the loving God, right? We now, it says here, we now set our mind on it. 
And so when all things work together for good, we'll now see that this is the hand of God. But not in this life, people. Not in this life at all. Because on top of bad things may come more bad things. The good is defined. Not that every difficult experience will lead to something good in this life, but verses 29 and 30 say this. If we are called according to his purpose, what does that mean? What is the good that he's talking about? The good is that, is that, uh, that God, Jesus may be the firstborn among many brothers. That means he has been raised from the dead. He is now has a, 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 a body, a glorified body sitting in heaven. But also, what does it mean? It says that he has desired for us to be conformed to the image of his son. For those who foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So giving me a better job, well, could never do that. Or the end of verse 30, those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's that? That's being holy. That's redemption. That's getting a new body. That's, as it says in Romans 8, we read the redemption of our bodies. That's the ultimate good. It's heaven. It's eternity. It's you and I being raised from the dead when Jesus comes. And the dead who are alive in Christ, well, then we caught up in the air, and the dead in Christ will raise together, and we will all be changed in an instant. And where will we be? In the new heaven, in the new earth, we will be in the whole new created order. That's what's good. That's what's good. But in closing, I want you to remember that just because it's good doesn't make it feel good. So tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword, death, slaughtering, any kind of thing you think of, will, will we just say, just smile, just keep smiling, it's all for good, God's going to work it all out, that's, that's, that's so viciously evil to even say that. But God gives us, by his word, the permission to cry, to lament. Remember, you, I've talked about this so many times. The core for us is Romans 8, 28 through, through 39. For, the, for the, the, the author of Lamentations, it is for the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. That's the core for him. The Exodus is the core for the Jews, the believing Jews. For Job. Verse, chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. 
And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He understood the good. He understood that he realized that throughout this whole thing, for everybody to read, that Job had to learn what it was for the good. And he complained, and he questioned God. And then God questioned him. Job expresses his deep sorrow and grief, someone writes, after learning about the loss of his possessions and the death of his children. He tears his robe, shaves his head, falls to the ground in worship, acknowledging that all things work together for good for those who toil according to God's purpose, for God's sovereignty. This is an invitation for us to be even better Christians and to be even better disciples. This is a call for us to be able to get it right, not only just memorize it, not to be a pacifier, not to be a mouth, but to be an instrument of grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask your kindness upon us. We recognize it already. We recognize the mercy, but we need more of your mercy and kindness to us, Lord. We certainly ask for forgiveness for the ways that we have set our minds on the things of the flesh from time to time and sometimes even repeatedly for a period in the season of time. And yet, Lord, we realize that if we are truly called by you, you've truly given us faith. You've summoned us to walk according to the path and the way of the Spirit that we will never lose our salvation, although it may be difficult. We may struggle. But in the end, Lord, you've called us and we could never lose that which you have given to us. For you began a work in us and you will bring us to the very end complete and full. So, Lord, may that be an encouragement to us as we walk in this world, as we walk together at Hope Church, as we live out in the world around us, that we can be evangelists and prophets proclaiming the word of God, introducing people to know who that, that if you really want it to work out for good, let me explain what good is. It's what happens to you after the date on your tombstone tells you that you're dead. Then what? What is next after you die? And for those of us who are living in this world, we have hope because it is all in your hands. And so, Lord, may you give us the ability to even cry and to weep and to tear our robes with with a sense of faith in our hearts to be able to understand that you are sovereignly in control and God allows us to weep and God allows us to cry and you allow us to lament. But Lord, deep inside of our heart, we remember that you love us and you died, your son died for us. 
and that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are here to continually uphold us as we live our lives. Lord, we may live long lives, we may live short lives, it may be all the life we're going to get, these short years of someone's life, but Lord, it was the life that you have ordained for them to live. In our hearts and minds, it's different. So Lord, we have lots of questions, we have lots of things going through our hearts and our minds, and you give us room to sometimes just wonder why. But again, we don't deserve an answer for how. We just need to be told and encouraged that. So, Lord, thank you for this message. Thank you for this passage. Prepare us now, Lord, as we gather together to proclaim your coming, proclaim our faith that you've given to us as we eat and drink together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.